Welcome to Maverick Inclusion Dial, where we will discuss all things related to diversity and inclusion on the Minnesota State University Mankato campus, community, and beyond. Hello, I am Erin from the Women's Center and the Graduate Assistant, and to here today I have with me Maria, Dr. Maria Bavacqua from the Gender and Women's Studies Department, and we are going to talk a little bit about the Supreme Court today. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me, Erin. This is uh, a pleasure to meet with you to talk about these very important issues. All right, so the first one kind of established like what role does the Supreme Court play in the U.S. government? So um, as Americans, we're taught that ours is a system of checks and balances when we're talking about the uh, structure of government and the different branches. So it was important for the framers of the Constitution to make sure that no one branch had exclusive authority over any particular issue. Um, so examples of these are the federal system. So we have both state and federal governments. Um, we have the bicameral system where we have both a House of Representatives and a Senate. Um, and we have the executive branch, which has veto power and so on. So this is the system of checks and balances that we are, um, that we are already familiar with probably if we've taken civics classes or um, uh, intro classes to American government. Um, and for our purposes today, we're talking about the principle of judicial review. And what that means is that the Supreme Court has the ultimate power to declare a law unconstitutional or constitutional, of course. So the Supreme Court is an appeals court. It only considers decisions that rise up to it from lower courts. Um, people don't just take their case directly to the Supreme Court. Um, so if I just back up a little bit, on that, um, the Supreme Court is concerned with any and all laws passed in the United States. Sometimes they're interpreting whether a law is constitutional. Other times they're interpreting the meaning of, um, of a statute or a law enacted by Congress or by a state. So for example, um, some of your listeners might be familiar with Title VII of the Stick, uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964. That's a statute, that's a law that um, um, deals with issues of workplace discrimination. It deals with more than that, but, but one of the main issues that we hear about Title VII is um, workplace discrimination. So that is not a specific constitutional question because Congress passed this law in 1964. But if someone wants to challenge the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title VII of it, or some aspect of the law or how it's applied, their case could rise to the level of the Supreme Court, even though that would be a law and not some aspect of the Constitution itself. So going. Yeah. I hope that helps. I hope that helps to answer your question, um, because really, ultimately, um, the Supreme Court is uh, has a very, I would say, maybe an indirect role. They they come in after the fact 
to adjudicate constitutionality and appropriateness of, of laws that are passed. Yeah, so based off that, like how are rights awarded or taken away by the Supreme Court? Well, the role of the Supreme Court has evolved um, since the framing of the Constitution. And perhaps the most um, recognizable laws that have to do with rights that have um, gotten to the Supreme Court have often to do with issues of racial discrimination. Um, one of the um, earliest cases, the Dred Scott decision from the 19th century, um, affirmed that um, slaves, when it came to um, census purposes, slaves were considered to be three-fifths human. So for every one white person, a, a slave could be considered three-fifths of that calculation. Um, and then the Plessy versus Ferguson decision from the late 19th century that uh, determined that laws that were focused on um, separate but equal were constitutional. So if there were um, provisions to provide school children education in a state, if a state had a provision to provide education to school children, um, the Plessy versus Ferguson decision was interpreted to mean that, that, that those states could provide separate education to black children and white children, for example, as long as that separate education was equal. Well, of course, you and I know the problem is that the education or whatever else it was in terms of legal treatment was not equal. Um, and so the landmark case of uh, Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas from 1954 was a landmark civil rights legislation that struck down separate but equal education for children, um, finding on the overwhelming evidence that the education that um, students of color were receiving was not equal to that of white students. And so this was a, a really um, uh, crucial factor in the civil rights struggles um, of the 20th century uh, and continues to be relevant today. So those are some of the ways that the Supreme Court um, has decided when it comes to rights. In terms of the Constitution itself, the, the most frequently cited amendment to um, support the idea of equal rights is the 14th Amendment, which contains an equal protection clause, which states that um, states may not deny citizens equal protection under the law. And so um, that might sound to you and me like it's straightforward language, but given the Supreme Court's um, pattern of decisions, it's not as straightforward as, um, as we might like to think it is. All right, thank you. So the recent appointment of the two uh, justices has been met with a lot of um, partisan support and opposition. Has the appointment of Supreme Court justices always been a political, like, pot stir? Um, what, um, further? Yeah, so historically, there have been um, 
some appointments or nomination actually so the president nominates a supreme court justice to fill a vacancy and then the next step is that the senate judiciary committee holds hearings called confirmation hearings to determine whether or not they um they will um vote to approve that nomination confirm otherwise and then the full senate votes and um of course the senate is made up of 100 senators and so if there's a tie as with any case um the tiebreaker is cast by the vice president so um the question of um sort of controversy surrounding nominations has been up and down over the years with most years most most of the time there isn't much of a controversy but one of the most outstanding controversies had to do with an extremely um far-right conservative supreme court nominee um named bork um who was nominated by president reagan in the late 1980s and there was enough outcry and um outrage that that nomination did not go forward um so that really set up a um a pattern where people started to take a lot more notice of who was being nominated and what role they might play given their perhaps ideological positions um what role they might play on supreme court decisions uh if they were confirmed um another fairly controversial um nomination was that of Clarence Thomas in 1991 and um that one um was um was controversial because he was the first conservative black um nominee to the Supreme Court um and it was the a very attention grabbing nomination because a former employee of um then judge thomas what had come forth um with allegations of sexual harassment and that was anita hill um and so even though clarence thomas did ultimately get confirmed to the supreme court um the discussions around sexual harassment that anita hill's testimony um inspired have really put the issue of sexual harassment on the political map and and made it relevant for far beyond the impact of the hearings um and the confirmation of uh justice thomas um itself so, so it, i i guess but but honestly can you name other justices of the supreme court who you know who you remember their their nomination their confirmation hearings maybe you can i don't mean to single you out but for most people i think it's a process that doesn't really grab their attention um the next one of course that was very attention grabbing was the um the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh uh again ultimately successful um he was confirmed to the Supreme Court and um and in his case as well there were allegations of um sexual misconduct um that were brought to the attention of the Senate Judiciary Committee um one of which they followed up on so there were other allegations that didn't 
didn't get the same attention that the um, that the, the one case did. So um, so those are probably some of the more controversial ones that you're familiar with, and that you know most people who watch the news will be familiar with. And then of course this year um, the nomination of uh, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, and ultimately the nomination, and then ultimately confirmation of uh, Justice Barrett. Yeah. Um, so the anti-choice movement has taken bites little by little away from choice through small state laws and regulations. So how can the pro-choice movement do something similar? Well, um, with the uh, confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, who was widely considered to be a, um, a Republican um, leaning, a, a right leaning conservative judge, um, with his confirmation in 2018, the balance of voting in the Supreme Court tipped from um, being kind of mixed to being um, more conservative, um, with five justices fairly solidly in the conservative um, category, but not exclusively. A lot of these justices don't vote strictly along those lines. They might veer a little bit and Chief Justice John Roberts is one for who's known for uh, sometimes um, not voting necessarily with um, the more conservative members of the Supreme Court. Um, so the the tipping of the balance, you might say, happened two years ago with the confirmation of Justice Kavanaugh. Then with the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in September, um, what was unusual is that um, the, uh, the the presidential campaign was nearing an end, um, and still the president made a, a nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, and the Senate Judiciary Committee moved forward with hearings, and the Senate itself moved forward with confirmation. And this, of course, was part of not just the content of how. Amy Coney Barrett might rule as a Supreme Court justice, but also the rushed process of getting another, um, get a, a, a Trump uh, nominee through because many, several years ago, um, when President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to fill the vacancy left by um, Justice Scalia upon his death, um, it was a full uh, 10 months before the, the election was to take place and the Senate, uh, the, the, the Senate majority leader um, then and still Mitch McConnell refused to allow the Senate Judiciary Committee to hold those hearings on the grounds that we're too close to an election. So we need to let the people decide who the next president is going to be and then wait until that president makes a nomination. Um, and even though there was a full 10 months, he said it's too soon. And in this case, with um, Justice Ginsburg passing in September uh, and an election coming up in November, that somehow was not uh, too soon. So that stirred up even more of the, the controversy surrounding her nomination. It was, um, it was very much a, um, you know, a, a, an instance of hypocrisy that there were one set of standards applied to a Democratic president's nominee, but a different set of standards applied to a Republican president's nominee. That was the concern that people um, uh, raised. And so, you know, you're you're asking about um, 
the uh, the, the emotions <laughs> surrounding those nominations. And um, I think that had a lot to do with it, along with the fact, um, uh, you know, going back to Brett Kavanaugh's nomination, uh, along with the fact that there were, again, allegations of, um, of sexual harassment or sexual assault that were not really being fully aired. Um, and uh, the the people who were bringing those those allegations were meant to be you know treated as though they were um, their their concerns were meaningless and had nothing to do with a person's character and fitness to serve on the Supreme Court. It's the highest court in the land. They have ultimate say over the laws that affect all of us, you know, every day. And um, and it seemed to be treated with uh, less than the the seriousness uh, called for in the situation. So there's been a lot of talk about how might the- I'm so sorry to interrupt you, Erin, but I realized I didn't address your question about her voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you are correct that um, there has been a robust um, movement to advocate for reproductive justice. Um, in, in many cases, uh, uh, feminist activism being involved in that. And um, in 1973, with the decision of Roe versus Wade, um, the effect of that decision was to decriminalize um, most abortion restrictions that existed throughout the United States. These were um, restrictions that mainly took place at the state level, so states regulating um, abortion, uh, the specifically abortion procedure. And so um, in 1973, that decision was handed down, but it wasn't an, a blanket like everybody, every abortion and so on. There were there was a trimester structure where the there was an increasing allowance for states to be more involved in those decisions or outright um, uh, prohibiting. And so you're correct that over the years, um, various states have attempted to pass laws that have chipped away at the overall um, rights that were accorded by Roe versus Wade. And um, those, those laws have been sponsored by anti-choice, anti-reproductive justice organizations. And um, sometimes those laws have been upheld by the Supreme Court. So in the late 1980s, um, there was a bit of a concession made where in, in one Supreme Court decision, um, the question that the Supreme Court decided would be the determining factor of whether a state law could be upheld um, restricting abortion was, did the law place an undue burden on a woman seeking an abortion? So you can see that that was a way to kind of walk a middle line, like trying to allow for some restrictions, but not all restrictions. Um, and so those that's one example of the ways that the Supreme Court has been um, making, um, you know, uh, some concession to the anti-choice side. And so your question about how the pro-choice movement might do something similar is simply to turn the whole thing in reverse. Um, which is a, a difficult battle to wage at this stage in the game. Um, so, for example, right now with the Supreme Court more solidly, right, the balance had tipped with the appointment of Kavanaugh, but now more solidly, we know that Amy Coney Barrett has um, articulated um, positions in favor of overturning Roe versus Wade. So 
it's, you know, she's considered to be another vote in favor of overturning Roe versus Wade. With that prospect that over Roe versus Wade could be overturned, we would return to, um, actually it'll be much worse than it was, uh, much different than it was in 1973, but we would return to having states have much more control over that. So a handful of states have affirmed Roe versus Wade in state legislation. So state governments have passed laws that would enshrine Roe versus Wade and others have not. And so it would be more of a state by state campaign should Roe versus Wade be overturned in, in any coming Supreme Court um, session, which you know, most people predict is quite quite possible, um, then it would be up to our states to affirm the right to access abortion. Um, and that's a that's an uphill climb. Yeah, definitely. Um, what the well, how might the LGBT community be affected by the recent change in the composition of the Supreme Court? which is the con- after the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett. Right, so um, that one is uh, also another kind of, you know, we'll see what happens, but one um, area of concern has to do with marriage equality because um, the in 2015, with the decision of Obergefell versus Hedges, Hodges, Hodges, um, the Supreme Court essentially struck down state laws that um, that that treated um, same-sex marriage differently from opposite-sex marriage. If we could just use those short-term, shorthand terms to uh, understand what we're all talking about. So, where previously many states had laws, uh, laws or even constitution, like state constitutions that defined marriage as between one man and one woman. Those were effectively struck down in 2015. So the question then becomes, what would what would come of those um, those uh, that decision if the Supreme Court should revisit it? Um, it's it's hoped for that the Supreme Court won't revisit it because by not revisiting it, they're leaving it alone and saying that it, it is right where it is. Um, but if they do revisit it and do another vote that perhaps goes the other way, then um, LGBT people will be right back where we were in 2013, um, as uh, in most states having laws that define marriage as between one man and one woman. And Minnesota is among them. Minnesota has a law that defines marriage as between one man and one woman. What we don't have is a constitutional amendment um, so doing. So um, laws can be changed more easily than constitutional amendments. Um, so maybe in Minnesota, we could get the legislature and the governor to pass um, to pass uh, a law to redefine marriage, but maybe not. Um, it's It depends on who's in the legislature and the composition of Republican and Democrat, and it depends on who is governor. Um, that's that's one of the main you know rights that we think about um, for LGBT people uh, and protections under the law. But it's not the only one. Um, laws that uh, govern who um, who can adopt 
um, could be up for um, for evaluation. So some states are um, wanting to restrict uh, adoption of children, foster and adoption to heterosexual people. And so that could be up in the air. And um, there, there was a recent decision that um, came down from the Supreme Court that upheld the treatment of sexual orientation as sex discrimination when it comes to um, workplace discrimination. So defining sexual orientation as sex under the terms of the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title VII of which um, restricts sex discrimination and race discrimination and discrimination based on religion and national origin. So if another workplace discrimination case rose to the level of the Supreme Court, they could reconsider whether or not sexual orientation is uh, considered to be sex discrimination under federal law. So there's a lot of different um, ways that, that the impact of a solid conservative majority could be felt uh, in terms of gender, race, sexuality, sexual orientation, and so on. Yeah, that is a lot. So yeah. where do we go from here? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, some um, some pundits have proposed that um, the um, that if the if both houses of the federal government um, of Congress, House of Representatives and the Senate, are able to hold on to Democratic majorities, and if uh, and once. Uh, President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris take office, that um, they could attempt to add justices to the Supreme Court. There's no, um, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that the Supreme Court is limited to nine justices. Um, and so, to perhaps balance it out, there's a proposal to, you know, to to add justices who would be Democratic nominees who would hopefully swing the the uh, the votes. I I think that's not very likely to happen, uh, given the disposition of um, of some of the individuals involved and given the um, the the way that would be perceived as as court packing, as it's called. Um, and so that's a possibility. But assuming that doesn't happen, then our attention really needs to turn to um, the states and seeing if the types of laws that the LGBT, LGBT community, racial justice community, feminist community want to have enshrined um, happen at the state level. There was a time when the Supreme Court was committed to um, not taking away rights, but those days are over, um, where the uh, efforts to uh, curb people's rights or take them away have actually been successful um, in a couple of cases at the Supreme Court. So, you know, I'd like to say, well, if Minnesota decides that, um, that uh, you know, abortion rights are going to be enshrined into law, if someone challenges that law, we can't assume that Supreme Court will uphold it on the basis that they don't take away rights. 
See what I'm saying? It's a little bit, it might be confusing, but. I get what you're once, saying. Yeah, there once was a time um, that the Supreme Court would was, was firm that once rights were given, you don't take them away. And so um, I don't think we can assume that anymore. Hmm. That's interesting to, to learn. Yes. So, so I think that social justice um, activism then turns to the states. There's also um, more options at the federal level to, um, for example, um, enshrine uh, ENDA, the non Employment Non-Discrimination Act into law. And that is um, a, a bill that's been around for a long time um, and has never garnered sufficient support for passage um, that has to do with um, workplace discrimination uh, against um, LGBT people. And so again, if we want to just not leave it to the Supreme Court to to be interpreting whether that's constitutional, if we had a federal law guaranteeing um, that workplace discrimination was, was not allowed uh, on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity, then um, it would be harder for the Supreme Court to have any uh, any say in that. So to kind of wrap up, like, what are some ways that we can take action locally? Mm -hmm. Well, I think we need to be more vigilant. We need to take action to um, look at every level of government. Uh, and, you know, the recent voter turnout efforts and the extraordinary effort, especially to, um, to ensure that uh, communities of color would get registered to vote uh, and and turn out to vote are a real inspiration for how grassroots activism can have an impact at the national level. So um, so I think those kinds of efforts need to continue and not just be treated as a one-time thing. Um, I think that our uh, our nonprofits and NGOs need to double down on their commitment to social justice. I think that our social justice organizations need to be really clear about um, where we're headed and that that moving in a direction um, of uh, toward conservatism means that people will have fewer rights and freedoms. And I'm not sure that we have sufficiently staked out that ground. That that if we're all if we can all agree about freedom, then let's make sure that our policies, our laws, and our practices enhance freedom rather than take it away. Yeah. Well, thank you for um, this discussion, <laughs> Maria. Yeah. No problem. Um, and thank you so much, uh, you and the Women's Center for all that you do. And let me use this opportunity to put in a plug uh, for my uh, spring semester 2021 class uh, that's being offered gender law and justice, which is GWS 222. It fulfills um, a couple of gen ed areas and it is going to be um, really dealing with these very issues we've been talking about in the podcast um, on a more, uh, you know, on a deeper level. And so I hope that anyone hearing this will, will strongly consider taking this class. Right? That sounds really awesome and interesting. Too bad I'm a graduate student. I know, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you again, Dr. Babako. No problem. Thank you, Erin. Take care. Have a good day. You too.